0: I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it greater under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on January 22, 2021. Episode 2. Free Speech. What is it? Why is it important? And why should we all be encouraging more, not less, speech beyond even the protections of the First Amendment? How have we come from the left jumping up and down and claiming the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United was the worst thing to happen to politics in the country because it allowed corporate influence via donations on elections? Influence that only occurs, by the way, through individuals involved in the corporation, its officers, directors, and shareholders, who most certainly have a right to speak. To a left that's now willing to let near monopolies, corporations decide who can and who cannot speak. From calls from the mainstream media to actions taken by social media platforms, it appears the left is all for corporate control of speech today. And how did we move from the ACLU's support of the rights of neo-Nazis to march through a community where many Holocaust survivors lived to a leaked 2018 memo from the same organization stating they should really only support certain speech, speech that's on one side of the political spectrum, of course? From locking individuals out of access to various social media platforms, to efforts to cancel, meaning to completely destroy, individuals and companies merely for their speech, I suspect Americans who stoically fought fascism, communism, and socialism in the 20th century would view today's news stories and calls for censorship as sounding much more like Lenin or Stalin's Soviet Union, Hitler's Nazi Germany, Mussolini's Italy, or Castro's Cuba. Cancel culture is the left's all-out war on anyone who dares to engage in speech not fully supportive of the left's agenda. It's the act of totally unaccountable groups and individuals applying pressure to others, often employers or financial supporters of the targeted person, to punish them in some way. And who are the victims of these extreme acts to bully and shut down speech? Let's take a look at a few examples to realize its absurdity and that despite the left's claims that cancel culture is a mere fiction of the right, it most certainly exists. Let's start with John Muir, you know, of Muir Woods in California, founder of the Sierra Club, protector of nature and the environment. Well, he's not living any longer, but he certainly was canceled by the very organization he founded due to remarks he made as a young immigrant in the 1800s that were viewed as insensitive to certain groups of people. He was canceled despite that his views changed as he aged and despite that he was quite progressive for his time, but the organization didn't care and thought it time to limit any tribute to its founder. And let's talk about cartoons. Yes, children's cartoons, like Paw Patrol. Paw Patrol found itself in the crosshairs of cancel culture for being too friendly to police and cries on social media to defund Paw Patrol and euthanize the police dog began trending. It's a cartoon, people. A cartoon. Shows like Cops, on the air since 1989, was canceled, along with newer reality police shows like Live PD. Lego stopped marketing police-focused Lego sets. Gone with the Wind was pulled from streaming and distribution, at least for a time, so that they could add a new warning about its troubling content. A Boeing executive lost his job for writing an article in 1987 opposing women fighter pilots. And terminations of endless employees have occurred after individuals dig up past posts on social media or photos of costumes worn at parties years and years ago, and this occurs more and more regularly. University professors have been boycotted and harassed for attending pro-police rallies, for supporting invitations of campus speakers who are identified as conservatives, or for using a foreign word that sounds too much like some unacceptable English word, even though it has no relation to that word at all and the left went so far as to cancel their own within the media. A New York Times opinion editor was harshly criticized for daring to approve publication of a conservative opinion piece by sitting Senator Tom Cotton. The editor of Bon Appetit magazine was forced to resign after years-old photos of him dressed as a Puerto Rican appeared. And changes in the Academy Award qualifications forced many celebrities to acknowledge it was very, very wrong for them to play and anyone other than who they were. That it's improper for a white person to play another race, a man to play a woman, a healthy person to play someone with a disability, and even a straight or gay actor to play a transgender character. I guess the concept of acting, that it's by definition one person acting as another, has been lost on Hollywood and the entertainment elites. If I want just to watch people be themselves, I can sit quietly and freely on a park bench and just people watch. When you oust those who say things with which you disagree, you eliminate any chance of free and open discussion, and you create a monopoly of ideas only a tyrant would appreciate. But 2020 was not the start of cancel culture, as you can see from these examples. But cancel culture has certainly risen in severity and continues to do so. It got so bad that a number of writers, professors, performers, and others penned an open letter to cancel culture published in Harper's Magazine in July 2020. This letter pointed out the dangerous precedent being established by the acceptance of this kind of chilling of free speech. As the letter explained, we uphold the value of robust and even caustic counter-speech from all quarters, but it is now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. What a novel concept. We should all uphold this value, but sadly many do not. And even those who signed this letter were attempted to be canceled, and the vitriol toward them great enough to result in at least some of them backpedaling and stating they would not have signed the letter if they'd known some of the others who would also be signing. That makes absolutely no sense, of course. You either agree with the letter's content or you don't. Who else signs on is irrelevant. What is perhaps most interesting about these cancellations, however, is that they're often made by large corporations, too cowardly to stand by their employees or stand tall and withstand the ridiculous backlash, and the left simply cheers. But I thought large corporations were evil and a threat to society. Well, apparently corporations are only evil when they themselves speak, per their right and the rights of their shareholders as protected and citizens united, but not when they're shutting down the speech of others. And it's also peculiar that the left, those championing this, championing this cancel culture, only cancel those on the right. Plenty of liberal public figures have been caught dressed in blackface, accused of wrongdoing related to the treatment of women, found to have made insensitive comments or used unacceptable racist language, but they somehow remain not canceled. Cancel culture is a power play such that those with the power can shut down speech. The danger in accepting this kind of action is that it shuts down public discourse. But it also means that if you're sitting there today cheering these steps to quiet opposing views, You need now be sure to be prepared that when power shifts the other way, you're certainly next. Power is what the Founders intended to address in the Constitution, including the First Amendment, and the power was to be retained by the people. Ultimately, the Founders protected this power for the people by providing the following. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. It is true that any discussion of the First Amendment applies only to the prohibition on government interference with the rights it contains, including the right to free speech. But the Founders' inclusion of the First Amendment to the Constitution was also due to a recognition that a free society requires free speech. That does not mean there is no speech that can result in legal liability. Defamation laws and the like can legitimately punish speech. But it does for the most part mean that any free society should not stop the speech in the first instance. And the importance of free speech has been recognized throughout history. Here are some keen observations of its importance. Freedom of speech is a principal pillar of a free government. When this support is taken away, the constitution of a free society is dissolved and tyranny is erected in its ruins. Benjamin Franklin Never interrupt your enemy when he is making a mistake. Napoleon Bonaparte If all mankind minus one were of one opinion, mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person than he, if he had the power, would be justified in silencing mankind. John Stuart Mill As to the evil which results from censorship, it is impossible to measure it, for it is impossible to tell where it ends. Jeremy Bentham To suppress free speech is a double wrong. It violates the rights of the hearer as well as those of the speaker, Frederick Douglass. So why read through these historic quotes about free speech? Because it's necessary to understand the significance of this key human right, that no free society has existed without it, and that our protections of it are at the heart of our republic. And the founders especially knew the damage done when a government does not allow free speech, especially the freedom to criticize the government itself. Regardless of the legal ability to do so, few benefits come from suppressing speech. The trial of John Peter Zenger in 1735 no doubt focused attention on the need for a free press and the related aspect and right of free speech. Zenger printed the New York Weekly Journal. His publication was not shy about providing regular criticism of the royal governor of New York, William Cosby. The publication accused Cosby of everything from criminal activity to simply just being an idiot. Zenger was not necessarily the author of these articles, but he did print them, and that got him embroiled in a lawsuit that accused him of libel, essentially the publication of information hostile to the government. Zenger's trial gained a lot of attention, and ultimately Zenger would be defended by none other than Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton's defense not only argued the burden should be on the government to prove the stories false, but also that to find against this printer flew in the face of liberty. This case may be one case of early jury nullification, where the jury refuses to convict due to a disagreement with the law itself, despite sufficient proof of a violation of it. As although the jury was instructed that if it determined Zinger did print the articles at issue, it must find him guilty, and despite that in his defense Zinger admitted to doing so, the jury returned a not guilty verdict. It is worth noting that these kinds of prosecutions continued against the press and citizens in Britain after the Revolution for speech and publications critical of the government. Though this case was more than 40 years before the Declaration of Independence, it was at least one event that influenced the colonists to push for more freedom when it came to speech and press. And though today's episode is focused on free speech primarily, a free media is so intertwined with issues of speech today that some discussion will delve into the media as well. The Zenger case also highlights what the common law of the day was prior to formation of the United States. It was quite common for the law to criminalize criticism of the laws itself, government policies, and government officials. This history helps put the protections incorporated in the Constitution into perspective. The speech and journalism most intended to be protected is that that is critical of the government, whether the person making those statements is a member of that government or an average citizen. And this may be a good point to note that the founders, Madison, Hamilton, Wilson, and others, actually didn't view the First Amendment as necessary at all, since they did not view the United States Constitution as drafted, as granting any authority to the federal government in the first place to regulate speech, press, assembly, or religion. Unfortunately, this distortion of the Constitution the country has experienced since its founding has claimed authority for the federal government to regulate nearly everything. So here, I am very thankful that despite their claims it was not necessary, the First Amendment was, in fact, added. But free speech is a human right, not one we get from the Constitution. That's clear from the Founders' original views that the First Amendment was not necessary, since if the federal government didn't have authority to regulate speech, people would continue to have that natural human right to speak. But though not believing it necessary, James Madison, a key drafter of the document and this amendment, is said to have explained it this way. Our First Amendment freedoms give us the right to think what we like and say what we please. We must have these rights, even if they are misused by a minority. But perhaps most importantly, a review of the history makes it clear that the kind of speech the First Amendment focused on was political. And for that reason, the censorship of speech in the political sphere that's now occurring even when done by privately held businesses, is so very troubling. And it's not just these private companies seeking to control who can speak and about what. Before we venture into the current state of censorship in the United States, let's take a look at how some terrifyingly brutal regimes used public and private censorship to gain control and power. The role of censorship in Nazi Germany sounds all too familiar to what we are hearing today the Nazi party engaged in a propaganda campaign to garner support for the Nazi leaders and their ideas. This propaganda was not just through direct government control, but through both this kind of control and censorship and propaganda campaigns that provided or encouraged certain messaging through newspapers, magazines, theater, radio, and music. In 1934, it became illegal to criticize or even joke about Hitler. And though the government has not, and constitutionally could not take that step here, if the government is ruled by one party... And that party uses that control to encourage, through veiled threats and incentives, private parties to engage in this very censorship and propaganda for them. Is there really any difference? If only pro-leftist ideas are left to be published, then it can only be expected more and more people may accept those ideas, hearing no others. Luckily, where the internet has created problems, it also makes it hard totally to control messaging and propaganda, as it could have been controlled in the 1930s and 40s. Removing books from libraries, another common method of control, occurred and it occurred, in, it occurred in our history. It could also be said to be similar to removing accounts from social media, especially where removal occurs in private school libraries or on private social media platforms. The Soviets, following the 1917 revolution, took a similar approach, but they also sought to remove from view entirely representations of any political opponents, removing individuals from past photos with Stalin, and essentially erasing their public existence. Sound familiar? If you take down the statues, you erase these people, correct? Fascist Italy, communist Cuba, and North Korea all engage in this type of total or attempted total control of what information is made available. Just as cries today claim they seek only to remove misinformation, I assure you the regimes of these other nations would have said the same. For who decides what information is legitimate and what is misinformation? And why should anyone but the people who read or hear the information decide? And then there was our own country's marred history of McCarthyism, which focused, via Senator McCarthy, on government employees thought to be disloyal to the government. But its sentiment carried over into private industries, most notably films, where hundreds of actors were blacklisted in Hollywood. Just as claims today for the need for censorship are to protect us from some harm, so too were McCarthy's cries for more and more investigations to weed out communists and communist sympathizers. The rationale is always the same when steps are taken to chill speech. It's for the greater good. But at the expense of freedom, it cannot be for the greater good. Now, cries from our elected officials and the mainstream media are sounding more and more like unconstitutional infringement of our rights to free speech, freedom of the press, to association, and to protest, and at a minimum are a serious threat to the preference for more speech that the founders valued. And though I have a strong protective streak when it comes to private property, including private companies, It may be time we realize that the Internet and its service providers are not much different than other necessary utilities like telephone lines. No one proposes censoring use of a telephone. Instead, the proper and most American way to treat the use of such utilities is to allow them to everyone, and only when someone's use is an actual crime is there a punishment. This used to be the position of the left not too long ago, but apparently they've conveniently overlooked it today. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez actually said this month, We're going to have to figure out how we rein in our media environment, so you can't just spew disinformation and misinformation. Apparently, someone should send her a copy of the Constitution with the First Amendment highlighted. Law professors Jack Goldsmith and Andrew Keene actually praised China's control of Internet use and suggested similar controls here. And Representative Adam Schiff sent messages to the big tech companies demanding censorship of, quote, misinformation. But again, who decides what is misinformation? Isn't that the point of free speech, that anyone can say whatever he wishes, but the listeners don't have to listen or believe it? Perhaps the the left's real fear of, quote, misinformation is tied to their realization that their control of public education, including higher education in this country for decades, is not turning out well-informed critical thinkers. It's turning out individuals who will simply believe what they're told. For that reason, it might be why CNN's Oliver Darcy suggested deplatforming anyone on the other side of the political spectrum. If you can remove one side, then those people are only going to hear one view. And if they accept it, all the better for the left. As Jonathan Turley explained about the Democratic Party of today, Once a party that fought for free speech, it has become the party demanding internet censorship and hate speech laws. And how do these calls for censorship play into all the false stories the mainstream media has peddled over the years? Why are we only entitled to hear one side? Why would you allow news from the corporate media giants and not the little guy? Again, this doesn't sound very classically liberal to me. The left has clearly lost its way. Perhaps Jonathan Turley nailed it again in a recent article he wrote for The Hill censorship works in a country much like the coronavirus. Initially, you feel better from silencing those views that you consider lies. Then comes the crash, as others demand more and more censorship, including views that you consider to be true. That is what has happened in Europe, where an expanding range of speech is being criminalized or censored. Without uncensored speech, the political system is left gasping for air. All of this is not to say that there are not still key classic liberals who recognize the dangers caused by the regulation of speech, including the private censorship of it. From Noam Chomsky to Alan Dershowitz to even feminist and former ACLU president Nadine Strawson, there are those that understand the dangers of censorship of speech. Strawson actually wrote about the error in seeking to ban hate speech, explaining that the greatest harms from such laws are actually to minorities and that the cure for hate speech is more speech. Unfortunately, those on the left who still favor free speech are dwindling, and we're moving more and more away from what the founders sought to protect with a limited government and expressly protected speech. And the mainstream media screams now to remove any alternate news sources threatens a blanket censorship of anyone who disagrees with the left's agenda and the current administration. Such a move would effectively shut down speech for about half the nation. And lest anyone be confused that these cries for censorship serve a legitimate purpose— Let's not overlook that our academic institutions are some of the biggest offenders. Once the bastion of free speech, thought, and exchange of ideas, the very nature of learning, they are now banning speech merely for being offensive. Such censorship and the penalties and chilling effect created by them is in no way American. But let's discuss some of the things that have occurred on our campuses. An uncountable number of conservative speakers have been invited to campuses only to find large-scale protests that interrupt the speech, or worse, that their speaking events are canceled due to objections to them, depriving the other students of the opportunity to hear what they may have to say. Religious organizations on campuses have been denied the right to exist where their bylaws require adherence to the religion to be a leader of the group. Satirical campus publications have been removed for causing offense to those who do not understand satire, another failing of the education being provided, I would say. A student newspaper set to publish a story and accompanying photo of a streaker at a recent football game was deemed too offensive to publish, and students who reported vandalism of a pro-life display found themselves, not the vandals, punished for reporting the damage. Is it any surprise that a recent University of North Carolina study found that 68% of conservatives on college campuses believe they must self-censor in order to avoid backlash? And some other campus surveys show an even higher number of students who are afraid to express their views in class assignments for fears doing so will negatively impact their grades. How can we ever hope our colleges and universities remain a place for exploration of ideas if so many students feel unable to express their own? In a generation raised on fighting bullying, these students simply cannot recognize disagreement as beneficial and find anything that offends them to be so objectionable they shouldn't be subjected to it at all. This is a sad state of affairs. Even the ACLU still holds mainly to its original, original principles in viewing the protection of free speech as critical to proper education, recognizing that merely offensive or bigoted speech should not be censored. But safe spaces, trigger warnings, and special counseling services for those offended by someone's speech are all too commonplace and do not bode well for the survival in the real world of these students. Though more and more real-world situations are set to similarly coddle them into never having to confront views different than their own, where is the lust for learning that would seek out such counterviews in order to expand one's own knowledge? Obviously, this is lacking. And all of this censorship results in identifiable Horrible results, namely the chilling of speech, such that many become unwilling to share their thoughts, closing off public and civil discussion of issues, and the fact that censorship has been shown to encourage and increase extremism is also being swept under the rug. For if you can shut off any counterpoints to your existing beliefs and only feed yourself continued confirmation that you are correct, what other result would be expected other than individuals becoming more and more extreme in those beliefs? Unfortunately, Individuals are being encouraged through censorship attempts to retreat into the very echo chambers that cause societal division and to use in response to any request to consider other positions that those positions, without any critical thought given to them, must simply be misinformation because they do not agree with a person's existing beliefs. How close-minded and ignorant from the side of the political spectrum that purports to be so very open-minded is this new push for censorship? Too often, today's cries for censorship come from those claiming to value speech, and the basis for their support of censorship is to stop the spread of misinformation. But that's interesting coming from a mainstream media that is caught time and time again completely manufacturing stories to sell to the American people. That same conglomeration of news outlets, the ones who are themselves guilty of outright fraud, fraud and lies, wants you to have nowhere else to turn for information. It is the rightful distrust of traditional media that requires a free and open forum elsewhere. And as of now, that elsewhere is the internet and alternative news channels. It's also interesting to hear no cries to remove the mainstream media purveyors of misinformation. Here are just a few examples of our fine objective news media at work. In 1981, the Washington Post Janet Cook wrote a Pulitzer prize winning piece on a young eight-year-old heroin addict who she used to write about the woes of drug usage in the DC area. If she admitted it was fiction to make a point, that might be a worthwhile way to see the dangers such drug use poses to communities. But it was sold as a true story, and even prompted then-DC Mayor Marion Barry, no stranger to drug, ad- drug addiction himself, to conduct a citywide search for the boy who was later announced to be bound dead. Of course, ultimately, it turned out the boy never existed. Cook admitted the lies and actually gave up her Pulitzer Prize. If only Nicole Hannah-Jones would consider doing the same for her fabricated 1619 project, we might be headed in the right direction. And in 1992, NBC rigged a GM truck with explosives to blow up on impact and then claimed the fuel tank had exploded after a low-speed collision to claim the dangers of these vehicles. ABC and CBS did similar things on other occasions with other vehicles. Ratings were certainly more important than the truth or the losses caused to the auto manufacturers by these fraudulent stories. In 1998, New Republic reporter, and I use that term loosely, Stephen Glass, wrote about a 15-year-old computer hacker employed by a large company to help with cybersecurity. Only problem was, this was fiction, and the company's website was a thrown-together concoction by Glass himself. After investigation, the New Republic did confirm that nearly half of what Glass had written for them was false. And there are many more stories of fabricated public interest stories, personal woes of people who never existed. But the lying gets even worse. The New York Times' Jason Blair was a serial offender, plagiarizing stories and making up facts about everything from the D.C. snipers to false quotes from service members he claimed to have interviewed. He may be rivaled by USA Today reporter Jack Kelly, who was also up for a Pulitzer when he came under scrutiny that uncovered hundreds of fabrications in his reporting over the years. And who could forget NBC's edits to the George Zimmerman call to 911 about the tragic shooting of Trayvon Martin? where the call was edited to make it sound like Zimmerman volunteered the young man's race, when in fact Zimmerman did not even mention Martin's race until asked by the 911 dispatcher. Or the Rolling Stone magazine story published about a college rape, accusing a fraternity at the University of Virginia of gang raping a young girl, but law enforcement investigations confirmed it was pure fiction, resulting in the magazines being named in a defamation lawsuit. And then there was TV anchor Brian Williams, an award-winning newsman, His most egregious, but by no means only lie, was that he had been in a helicopter that was shot down in Iraq. Turns out, he was not, but it sure sounded good. He wasn't a helicopter. He was in Iraq. It landed safely and was not ever under attack, of course. And then there's Dan Rather, the hard-hitting journalist, who relied on forged documents to try to claim President George W. Bush had not served with honor in the Texas Air National Guard. Even after being proven to be forgeries, Rather would not back down. Sure sounds like unbiased journalism to me. Then there were three journalists who had to resign from CNN after wrongly reporting that Anthony Scaramucci was tied to a Russian investment fund and was part of Trump's ties to Russia. The Russian hoax is for another day, but this particular story was completely made up. And then there are either lies or negligently incompetent reporting in cases like that of the shooting of Jacob Blake, who was described for weeks, if not months, as an unarmed black man, when it turns out, by Blake's own admission, he was in fact armed with a knife. So what's the big deal? People protested and rioted as a result. That's the big deal. Linking political incitement to the shooting of Gabby Giffords in early stories, rather than acknowledging that the criminal act was an isolated one of a mentally disturbed individual, was another error of the media. Allegations against the teens from Covington Catholic attending the March for Life, calling them names and placing labels on them for doing nothing other than standing quietly for the life of the unborn. Buying and selling Jossie Smollett's manufactured hate crime. Absurd claims that that Putin planned a Syrian, Syrian gas attack to help Trump. And, well, basically any claim about Trump and the Russians. And I could go on. Maybe even worse than these blatant lies are when the news media takes pure allegations and presents them to their audiences as fact since it can be hard to parse through all the information now available to us. Way too many just take these statements as fact and look no further. But all too often, the allegations are not only wrong, but completely opposite to what the truth turns out to be. Truth buried, if reported at all, way down in a broadcast or newspaper so as not to take away from the more interesting fabrication. And let's not get started on how often a news story is running on a news channel with video footage or photos that aren't actually representing what's being reported. In a report about the high coronavirus cases and issues facing New York early in the pandemic, CBS conveniently used footage footage from Italy's overflowing hospital wards, claiming it represented the current status in New York. Video from a U.S. gun range was used by ABC in a report on bombings on Syria. And then there's the editing of video clips to make speakers appear to say something they simply are not. And then you have just the incredible internal bias, amazing bias in fact, that is boldly proclaimed by many media stories including the Washington Post obituary for U.S. forces-killed terrorist Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was described by the Post, wait for it, as an austere religious scholar. If that's true, I don't want to hear any more about Trump's incitement of insurrection or treason on January 6th if these same individuals and organizations find it perfectly acceptable to praise terrorists who've knowingly and intentionally killed Americans. Is not that kind of support for our enemies treason as well? No more do the major newspapers and networks journalists, they may call themselves, abide by previously understood ethics of the profession. Beginning back in the mid-19th century, a British newspaper man made it clear what role journalists should play and how they should undertake their work. John Thaddeus Delane, editor of London's The Times, prepared just a set of ethics in 1852 to govern journalists. Those rules included the following... The duty of the journalist is the same as that of the historian, to seek out the truth above all things, and to present it to his readers, the truth as he can attain it. And, to perform its duties with entire independence, the press can enter into no close or binding relations with the statesmen of the day, nor can it surrender its permanent interest to the convenience of the power of any government. These early attempts at formalizing the ethics of journalism evolved over time into expansive codes of ethics that still claim to require impartiality, accuracy, independence, accountability, and humanity. It seems, however, that our mainstream media only works on the humanity part, and only to the extent that one is serving humanity by promoting a far-left progressive narrative. Far from today's journalists, who in a sycophantic way fawn over officials on the left— while affording no objective observation or reporting on those who dare to promote more conservative principles. Today's journalists have no ethics. I can find no ethical rules that bind them. A review of negative headlines and stories about recent presidents is an example of how far the media has drifted from being factual reports, objective journalists, and newsmen to what it now is, which is a biased representation of one side. President Bill Clinton, and keep in mind these statistics come from a potentially biased source themselves, having been reported by NPR, received 28% clearly negative news coverage and 27% clearly positive. President George W. Bush, 28% negative, 22% positive. President Barack Obama, 20% negative, 42% positive. And President Trump, 62% negative, 5% positive. And in addition to these being questionable statistics that may skew even further against Republican presidents, it includes the very right-wing news media stories the mainstream media, large companies, and current government officials are now calling to further cut off from access to the public. In other words, these statistics include news stories from the likes of Fox News. Where one side is easily more represented in biased news coverage than the other, the solution for a free society is not to censor the minority viewpoint. Such actions fly in the face of a free and open society and are counter to the very type of society the founders intended to establish. Let's return for a moment to the claims of insurrection on January 6th and compare what happened on that day to other incidents of protests, free speech, and violence, and determine if any one of these is more a threat to democracy than the others and whether the cure is more or less speech. Just a hint, I'm probably going to say more speech. I in no way condone, endorse, or otherwise support any of the criminal conduct involved in the riots at the Capitol on January 6. I was disgusted by that conduct, and I see it as none other than the rogue acts of thugs. It was a failed insurrection carried out by a relatively small bunch of idiots. But the response to it has not been to focus on the fact that nearly everyone agrees with what I just said. But instead for the left to use this, along with those who support them in the media and big tech, to claim incitement of violence and insurrection in order to take yet another hammer to free speech, chipping away at it bit by bit and ever larger bits at a time. So let's look at what President Trump actually did say to determine whether this was incitement and whether this is the kind of speech that should be suppressed. After a very typical Trump speech touting his own accomplishments and raising issues of the threats posed by the Democrats, he said the following. So we're going to. We're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol. And we're going to try and give. The Democrats are hopeless. They're never voting for anything, not even one vote. But we're going to try and give our Republicans, the weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help. We're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I want to thank you all. God bless you and God bless America. Thank you all for being here. This is incredible. Thank you very much. Thank you. Is Trump eloquent? Uh, no. Is he inflammatory? Sometimes. Did he tell anyone to go storm the Capitol, break in, and use violence? Uh, no. He said, let's walk. Walk down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol. If this kind of speech is inciting violence or insurrection, then none of the rest of us have any hope of making any speech in support of or against any political candidate or position without also being faced with allegations of inciting violence or insurrection. And can you really take seriously the claims of incitement by those who for the entire four years of his presidency accused him time and time again of unproven misdeeds and claimed every public appearance he made was merely fanning the flames of violence and discord? This was not a new accusation. It just happened to be easier to take hold of the whole mainstream media because of the ridiculous idiocy of the few and horrible criminals at the Capitol. Compare this speech with the speech of many on the left in the days of the BLM riots, or about Trump and his supporters generally, and tell me honestly, which speech, which type of speech, is an incitement to riot or violence? The simple fact that the January 6th incident occurred at the U.S. Capitol, making it hard to watch for patriotic Americans, and carrying with it a symbolism that is felt by the entire nation, does not change the nature of the speech involved. Senator Cory Booker encouraged people to, quote, get up in the face of some Congress people. Representative Maxine Waters gave a speech that included this gem. If you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd and you push back on them. And you tell them they're not welcome anymore, anywhere. Attacks on Trump supporters leaving the White House after various events is well documented. Representative Ayanna Presley pushed for, quote, unrest in the streets against the administration. Now Vice President Kamala Harris tweeted seeking donations to bail out rioters in Minnesota. Biden, during his presidential campaign, said on more than one occasion that he wanted to and would threaten to fight Trump like some schoolyard bully. Think that this move for censorship is objective? think again. None of these individuals have been censored or even taken to task in any way for their comments in support of and encouraging violence. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez skipped Biden's inauguration, in fact, because she says she does not feel safe around Republicans. Aside from being a moronic statement, it gives a further look into how far these members of the left may be willing to go to try to characterize anyone on the other side of politics as a threat, and thereby worthy of and rightfully censored. If she can claim she feels physically threatened, why does that not also mean that every statement by a Republican is itself inciting violence? Unfortunately, the rise in censorship is not occurring only in the United States. Great Britain now urges citizens to contact law enforcement about offensive speech due to criminalizing speech that amounts to insults or that cause wounded or hurt feelings. Places like Hungary and Turkey now sound more like the Chinese, and this doesn't even touch the real restraints on speech in places like China, Russia, and Iran. The saving point for us is that the United States courts have worked to protect speech against as much encroachment as other nations are now seeing, but the trend is still a frightening one. The rise in censorship should not be a huge surprise, as it was certainly foreshadowed in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights Treaty in 1948, where the Soviet view of free speech appeared to carry the day over more freedom common, the more freedom common in the West. That the Soviet view on this issue would continue well past the existence of even that country is both sad and shocking. but but perhaps not any more shocking than the West's capitulation to them on this issue in the first place. Of course, a treaty doesn't change our constitutional protections of free speech, but it can serve to be yet another piece in the puzzle that appears to unravel the importance of speech to freedom itself. This rise in censorship we see today goes hand-in-hand with both the slow burn of the Soviet view of speech, where incitement of hate or discrimination was not permitted, a precursor to our hate speech laws perhaps, and the more recent rise in technology and the various platforms that allow nearly everyone to post his or her own thoughts or ideas. Now that everyone seemingly has a platform upon which to speak, some are all too willing to deny that right to those with whom they disagree." Thank you for joining me today. Lest anyone be confused, calls for peace and unity now coming from Washington, D.C., as much as I would like them to be genuine, are no more than cloaked demands that we all agree with those in charge. But peace and unity do not come from shutting down debate and silencing counter viewpoints. Doing so is a sure way to ensure no peace and no unity anytime in the near future. Next week, we'll discuss how identity politics is causing divisions in the country that are leading to the very censorship we discussed today while minimizing any chance we have to return to a unified society in which all opinions are valued and heard. The new push for identity by membership in certain groups threatens individuality and pushes us more toward a new era of segregation. So as we will end each episode, let's consider again that most astute observer of the new American nation at the time of its founding, Alexis de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville explained the dangers of the monolithic mainstream media we now endure. When a large number of organs of the press come to advance along the same track, their influence becomes almost irresistible in the long term, and public opinion, struck always from the same side, ends by yielding under their blows. Let us not yield under the blows of a one-sided media. Instead, continue to fight for more speech from more sources, such that public, public discourse can again be valuable and vigorous. Until next time, stay free, stay safe, search for truth, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to share the podcast with others who may enjoy or need to hear it. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solas Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octor. Copyright 2021.